might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the ear the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned, and those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father, we are the clay, and thou our potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? So far we read in God's Word this morning. Now let's turn to the Heidelberg Catechism and consider the instruction of Lord's Day 22. This is the end of the Apostles' Creed that we have been considering Question 57 asks, What comfort doth the resurrection of the body afford thee? That not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. What comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? That since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy after this life, I shall inherit perfect salvation, which eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to praise God therein forever. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah 64 may seem like a rather bleak chapter to read in connection with the Christian's hope. Imagine the blue sky above suddenly torn in pieces the way you might tear a piece of paper out of a notebook. Imagine the Lord then descending through the gap that has been rent in the heavens with eyes that blaze like lightning. Imagine the mountains erupting with hot ash, the lava rolling into the sea, which then boils and froths because of the sudden mixture of heat and lava. That's the picture of God coming down in His wrath at the end of the world as Isaiah describes it in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. And we all are as an unclean thing, he goes on to say in verse 6. Even our best works... Our righteousnesses, what do they count before this holy God who is coming? They are like filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf. Filthy rags and dry leaves, all they do is add fuel to the fire that God will ignite when He comes down in His judgment. 
For guilty sinners like ourselves, the coming of the Lord at the end of the world seems like an awful prospect. It's a rather dreadful, terrifying picture that we get in this chapter. Yet this dreadful picture that Isaiah draws for us is exactly what makes the Christian's hope so reliable. Christian hope does not look away from the truth. The truth is that we are sinners who are going to die because we live in a fallen world. The truth is we have no right to expect anything from God on account of who we are or what we have done. You will have hope. You must look at that truth. You will have hope. You must face grim reality and reckon with it. The Christian hope does this. But the Christian hope does not leave us standing there on the edge. It overcomes that grim reality of our fallen condition by looking to God and His mercy. The Christian says, I believe in a God who is able to bring out life where before there was only death. The Christian says, I believe in a God who will build an eternal city where there are only ruins and devastation. The Christian says, I believe in a God who is able to make saints out of sinners, who puts everlasting joy in hearts that are otherwise shriveled up and full of despair. Eye hath not seen it, ear hath not heard it, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive it. Yet I believe that there is a perfect, complete salvation that God is preparing for me and all of His people, and I will wait in hope to inherit that perfect salvation. That's what I call our attention to this morning, waiting to inherit perfect salvation. First, we will see that this perfect salvation we wait for is very personal for us. It pertains to our own life and our own body. So in the first point, we will look at the resurrection of the body. Then secondly, we'll see how that broadens out and includes in its scope the whole universe, the whole creation. And we will consider the life everlasting. And then we'll conclude by noticing that we have true hope as Christians, true, genuine hope. And we have that hope today. So waiting to inherit perfect salvation, first, the resurrection of the body, second, the life everlasting, finally, true hope. Perfect salvation includes the resurrection of the body, and that makes this a very personal and individual matter for us. Your body is not just a suitcase for your soul as you pass through on your pilgrim journey to heaven. That's a common mistake that Christians sometimes make. They say, I have a body and I have a soul, but my body really isn't me. My body is going to die. My body is going to be buried. My body is going to break down. And it's only really my soul that counts, my soul that will fly away and go to heaven one day. Now, if that were true, that it's only the soul that counts, our creed would not speak of the resurrection of the body. It would speak of the resurrection of the soul, perhaps, but notice the creed doesn't even mention the soul. It speaks of the resurrection of the body. And that's important for us to notice and to reckon with. Your body very much belongs to who and what you are. When God made Adam, He formed him out of the dust and breathed into him the breath of life. And it was only when Adam was put together, body and spirit, that Scripture says man was a living soul. Body and soul are intimately connected. So much connected that it's who and what we are. We are creatures of body and soul. This is why death is so inherently violent and upsetting to us. Death involves the tearing apart of what God created to be one whole. 
body and soul. But that also makes it very personal when the Lord's Day teaches us that this my body will be raised back to life. Resurrection is not resurrection to something completely unfamiliar and completely different. Resurrection will be a resurrection to the same body that you are living in right now. It will be a resurrection to the same body that was first conceived in your mother's womb. It will be a resurrection to the same body in which you breathed every last breath in the course of this, your life. The Lord made this body. He curiously knit together this body with great carefulness in the lowest part of the earth, as the psalmist says. Think for a minute of everything that you have experienced in your body. Your whole life has been in this body, flesh and blood. Think of the joys that you have experienced in this body that you possess right now. Joys of childhood and growing up. The pleasant experiences of friendship. The celebrations. The sights that these eyes have taken in. The beauty that this brain has processed and understood. The embraces that you have felt with these arms. Think of the sorrows the pains, the grief that isn't only something that you experience in your soul, but the grief that, as it were, you feel in your very bones because you've lost someone or you've lost something. The memories of pain and suffering that you wish would go away, that you wish that you could forget, but it's like it's embedded right in your body, right in your flesh and blood. You would think that when a person goes through an intense or violent episode of life, that when that episode is over, they can just move on and they can forget about it. But the truth is, there are wounds that we experience in our souls that never really heal because they get embedded in our body like When a physical wound is inflicted on you and a scar is left, and there's always that scar tissue that reminds you of what what happened, that physical altercation that can happen with wounds of the soul. They get embedded in the flesh. Scars are left behind. This, my body, that's the body we're talking about, the body in which you've experienced the joys of life, the body in which you've experienced the sorrows and the grief of life. This body... This my body, the Lord's day says, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. The resurrection does not mean that God is going to create a new body someday for you that's entirely unrelated from this my body, and then your soul is going to be put in that body in the life everlasting. No, it's this body. After the heart of this body stops beating, after the lungs of this body stop expanding and contracting, after the eyes of this body have gone dark, after the flesh of this body has dissolved and returned to the dust of the earth so that only bones are left, God will call this my body back to life by the power of His Word. That's intensely personal. You are no more vulnerable than when your body is in the grave and your soul is naked in the hands of the living God. But resurrection is when God takes the pieces that have been broken 
and knits them back together to make them whole again. It will be this body that is raised. On the other hand, resurrection of the body is very much a powerful and new work of God. Maybe the thought of being raised again in this body is something that you're not sure about, and that gives you pause, especially in light of everything that we just said about this body and the things that we've experienced in this body. Does this mean that I will be raised again with those scars that have been embedded in this, my body? What if I was born with a disability? And that's all I've ever known, and that's all I've ever experienced in this, my body. If it's my body that's raised, then will I have that disability still when I come into the resurrection? What if I have PTSD because I've experienced something traumatic in my life? Will I still have those memories that keep me up in the middle of the night, which have become so part of who and what I am when I'm raised again? And that might give us pause. Do I really want this body to be raised again? That makes it important to see that the resurrection will be a powerful and new work of God. When the body is raised, it will be raised by the power of Christ, the Lord's Day says, to be like unto His glorious body. Question and answer 57 says, This my body, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. Now, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that when we are raised from the dead, we will be able to pass through stone walls just like Jesus passed through the stone walls of His tomb when He was risen on Easter morning? When we are raised from the dead in a glorious new body, does that mean we will be able to disappear and reappear some other place instantaneously, just like Jesus disappeared from the house in Emmaus and then later reappeared among his disciples in the upper room? Is that what it means when it says we will be made like unto his glorious body? A couple of things to keep in mind when we think about this. First of all, remember that when Jesus rose from the dead and did those things that we read about in the Gospels, the situation was a bit unique. Jesus was raised again in a glorious new body, a body that was fit for the new heavens and the new earth, but he was interacting with this old fallen creation. The old and the new were colliding with each other when Jesus rose from the dead. But when we are raised from the dead, we will have new bodies that are fit for life in a new heavens and a new earth, and we will be living in that new heavens and that new earth. We should also keep in mind what it is that makes the resurrection so wonderful and so hopeful for us. And it's not that we will be like superhumans that are doing all kinds of strange and inhuman things like passing through walls or disappearing and reappearing somewhere else. What makes the resurrection so wonderful is that in the body and in the soul, at last we will have rest. If we have gone through terrible suffering... And many of us have. To some extent, all of us have because that's life in the fallen world that we live in. But if we have gone through terrible suffering, we tend to think it would be better if we could just forget about that. But what we need to know is that forgetting comes at the cost of losing ourselves and losing the sense of who we are and what we are. We have to know ourselves. We have to know ourselves as sinners before we can appreciate the great goodness and grace and mercy of forgiveness. We have to know ourselves as broken before we can understand and appreciate the great goodness and mercy and wonder of being restored. Rest. That's the resurrection of the body. That's the life that we will experience in the resurrection of the body. Rest. What is rest? Rest is what comes after fighting. Rest is what comes after struggling. But what makes rest so sweet and what makes rest so good is exactly 
that we've gone through the battle and we've gone through the fight and now we have rest. And that's what the resurrection is like. The resurrection is not forgetfulness, strictly speaking. The resurrection is Sabbath. It is rest after labor. It is peace after the battle. That's what was so great about it for the Lord, wasn't it? After the intensity of His battle against the devil, after the struggle that He went through on the cross, now He had rest in the resurrection That will be the same for us too. And we don't have to create this peace and rest for ourselves or in ourselves. God will give it to us. He will give it to us. He will infuse it into our very nature. He will wipe away the tears from our eyes. He will ease the stress that is in our limbs. He will give the gift of light and joy and life and peace that we can feel in our very bones that He will trade out for the sadness and the grief and the pain and the suffering. So we can see perfect salvation includes the resurrection of the body. And what an important thing that is. We mustn't lose sight of that. Beloved, that's, that's where our hope is. Our hope is that this, my body, will be raised, will be made like unto the glorious body of Christ, and that in that glorious body we will have rest. But there is that period when the soul and body are separate for a time, isn't there? That's the period we call the intermediate state, the time in between our death and the final resurrection Now, I want to be clear again that the intermediate state is not the perfect salvation that we wait for. Perfect means complete. Perfect means that we are possessing and experiencing everything that God intends for us to possess and experience. And we won't have that when we are in our soul in heaven. Not yet. It will be perfect from a certain point of view. It will be perfect from the point of view that there will be no more sin. It will be perfect from the point of view that we will have peace. We will have joy. It will be certainly an improvement from the life that we experience right now in this cursed world. But it will not be perfect in the sense of being complete. If you set the table, you will not say that dinner is ready if there are only cups and forks on the table. You also need the plates and the spoons and the knives and you need the chairs and the tablecloth and the people and the food. Then it's perfect. Then it's complete. Then everything is ready. The Bible does make clear that the souls in heaven are still waiting for something. They cry out for God to avenge them. In Revelation 6, verse 10, they say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that are dwelling on the earth? And that tells us something about those souls in heaven. The souls in heaven are very much in tune to what God is doing in time and in the history of this world. They are still watching. They are still waiting for the end to come, just like you and I are watching and waiting. And that's because even the souls in heaven long to inherit perfect salvation that they will experience in body and soul. Going to heaven in our soul is not the ultimate goal that we are looking forward to, as important as that is. But there is a beautiful hope in that promise that our souls will go to heaven when we die. That is a kind of resurrection. When this body dies and our soul flies away to meet the Creator in glory, when you close your eyes to this life, when you breathe your final breath, something that we all look up against with a certain fear, but nevertheless, when that happens, immediately, consciously, you will be with Jesus You will experience Him. You'll experience Him in His glorified presence. You'll experience the rest that He gives to His weary soldiers. The Lord's Day says that my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ, its head 
What a comforting confession that is. And the Lord's Day puts that confession in our mouths, basing it upon good and solid biblical grounds. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow. Not a thousand years from now after your soul has been purged in the flames of purgatory. Not after a long period of soul sleep. No, today, today you will be with me in paradise. That's Luke 23, 43. This hope of going to heaven in our souls follows directly from the truth that we are united to Jesus Christ by a true and living faith and by a spiritual bond. Every believer is united to Jesus Christ as the members of the body are united to their head and there can be no separation between Christ the head and the members of His body. Some want to say that believers who die will go into this state of unconscious soul sleep until the resurrection. And that's not only those in the cults who teach that, like in the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I've heard that taught in the college that I attended to, a Christian college. When the body dies, they say, the soul simply ceases to exist, or the soul goes into an unconscious state, and there's only the resurrection of the body that is our hope. But what that would mean is that a person for whom Jesus died would for a time be separated from Him. And that could never be. There cannot be this separation of a thousand years or a hundred years or even a few seconds between the believer and the Lord who died for Him. So you mustn't be troubled over the condition of your loved ones who have died in Christ, beloved. They're not in an unconscious soul sleep. They're not in a place called purgatory where their sins are being purged away in hellish flames. They have no sins to be purged away because those sins have all been removed by the blood of Jesus Christ. They are at rest, conscious rest with the Lord in their souls as they wait for the completion of their salvation in the life everlasting and that's our hope as well. But now we have to look at that life everlasting which broadens out the hope that we have for perfect salvation from our own personal and individual hope to the hope that we have with respect to the whole cosmos, the whole world that God has made. There are many wonderful things that we can say about the life everlasting for starters, it is a life that will involve more than just you and me. The life everlasting will involve not just you and not just me, but will involve all of the saints of God. Jude speaks of Jesus coming at the end of the world along with ten thousands of His saints. There will be a multitude of individuals, all who have been redeemed, all who will be restored to life in a new heavens and a new earth. I know sometimes in our weakness, as we think about heaven and the kind of life that we will live there, we wonder, what's that going to be like? What's it going to be like to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Won't I get bored? Won't we run out of things to do? Well, there's a lot of things we could say to answer that question that we sometimes have. But one thing that we can say about it is this. In that life everlasting, in that new heavens and new earth, you will not be alone. There will be the saints there. The saints. Ten thousands upon ten thousands of them and thousands and thousands, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the sand of the seashore, all redeemed like you, all having gone through their own process of redemption and sanctification and death and glory. And you'll be there with them. And you'll be able to talk with them. And they'll be able to talk with you. And there will be a joy together, a, a camaraderie, a, a life together with the saints in glory. Peter will be there. Won't you want to talk to Peter? 
Don't you want to talk to John and Moses and Elijah? We can anticipate that. We can hope for that. That's not silly or childish to think about that. What a wonderful thing that will be to talk to those saints that we've read about, that we've heard about in the Bible story since we were little children. David, Jonathan. What was it like, David, when you were standing up facing Goliath in that valley? What was it like, Jonathan, when you took on that horde of Philistines with just you and one other man of Israel? We're not going to get bored. (laughs) We're going to have all of life to commune and fellowship with the saints and they with us. But it's not just the saints that will be there, but there's the whole creation itself which is given a place in a life everlasting. It's not just human bodies that will die and be raised again to glory. It's the whole universe that, as it, will, as it were, will die and be raised again to glory. The elements of this old world will melt with a fervent heat, we read in the book of First Peter, and all the works of men that are in that old world will be destroyed. The old creation will be purged of everything that defiles. Every aspect of the curse will be removed. It's like this whole creation that we see around us will die. But God will not leave that old creation that He loves, right? God so loved the world. God so loved the cosmos. He will not leave that creation that He loves in ashes and ruin for all eternity. No, He will renew it. He will resurrect it. He will make all things new. A new heaven. A new earth. A new kingdom of peace wherein righteousness dwells. That belongs to the life everlasting as well. Rightly, we criticize the ideas that some Christians have of an earthly millennial kingdom of Jesus. Some say that this world will get better and better and better until, uh, through Christian efforts until the kingdom arrives. And and we call that post-millennialism. The kingdom will come after the church improves this world for a thousand years. Others say that Jesus will come personally and will establish a kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. And we call that premillennialism because Jesus comes before the thousand year kingdom. But the problem with both of those ideas is that they say the kingdom of heaven belongs to this age, to this, this world as we see it around us and as we interact with it in the present time. It's an earthly kingdom and that's, that's wrong. There is no Christian utopia that's coming before all things will be made new. There will be no fully realized kingdom of heaven until this world has been broken down. Everything must burn. Everything must be destroyed. And that includes that old city of Jerusalem. That includes the ruins of that old temple. That includes all the works of art and culture that human beings have made. Only when all of those things are destroyed will God make this new heavens and this new earth new. But don't misunderstand when we reject those premillennial and postmillennial ideas of an earthly kingdom, it is this creation that Christ has redeemed. And it is this creation that God will restore. It is this creation with its sky above and its trees and its birds and all living creatures in it that God made in the beginning that will be our home in the life everlasting As much as it will be this my body that is raised from the dead, so much will it be this creation that God makes new. But it will be revitalized. It will be a creation purged from all the defiling effects of sin and of the curse. Revelation 21 verse 27 says, There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. There will be no serpent And that new heavens and the new earth who seeks in, sneaks in and ruins everything. There will be no devil in that new creation who tempts uh, the human creatures back into sin. There will be no tree of knowledge of good and evil. All of that will be past. But it will be this creation that is made new by God, by a wonder work of God. There are other details about this future life that we can gather from the witness of Scripture. 
the life everlasting will be safe. Safe. This present evil age is characterized by all kinds of influences that jeopardize our safety and make us afraid. There are lions who run off with sheep and lambs and devour them. There are diseases. There are wars. There are threats. There are venomous serpents. But in the life everlasting, though there will be lions, the lions will not be a threat. The lion will lay down with the lamb and they will dwell together in peace. And the little children will play near the den of the venomous snake without fear. There will be no pain. There will be no loss. No suffering. Nothing to be afraid of. It will be safe. The life everlasting, in addition to being safe, will be sinless. It will be sinless, first of all, because we as individuals will be personally sinless. Imagine, beloved, if your soul was impervious to being drawn away by lust, drawn away by some temptation and enticed to do evil. Imagine if such a thing could not even enter into your imagination or into your thoughts. Your, your soul is impervious to it. That will be the life everlasting. And it's not only that you yourself will be sinless, but there won't be sin in anyone else either. There will be no harsh words spoken among all of the saints who are gathered in that life everlasting. There will be no bullies in that life everlasting. There will be no gossip and slander in that life everlasting that disrupts the fellowship of the saints here below. There will be no abuse in the life everlasting. There will be no endless interest in human drama in the life everlasting. All of that will be past. There will be no sin. Only the pursuit of God. Only the pursuit of deeper and richer fellowship with God and His saints. And in addition to being safe and sinless, that life everlasting will be unspeakably beautiful. We love it when the Bible tells us of the streets of gold and the gates that are decked with gemstones. We like to imagine that stream of pure water, clear as crystal, running from the throne of the Lamb and God who sits on that throne. We like to think of those trees that are full of luscious fruit. But those are only pictures that the Bible gives to us to, to whet our appetite, as it were. The truth is, it will be far more beautiful than we can even understand. And that's why the Lord's Day is just a little bit vague in the way that it explains the nature of the life everlasting. We think that we would like to have our curiosity satisfied about the details of heaven. Again, we like to ask ourselves these questions and speculate about these questions. And there's nothing wrong with that. Those are good questions to discuss. Good things to think about when we're sitting together and it's late at night and we're having a conversation with our friends. What will we do every day in heaven? Are we going to play games in heaven? Are we going to listen to music in heaven? Will we enjoy the same kinds of things in heaven that we enjoyed while we were on earth? Will we go for walks in heaven? Will we have good conversations in heaven? Will we ever reach a point where after thousands and thousands of years perhaps we get tired of some things and move on to other things? And again, it's not wrong to ask those kinds of questions and, and to think about them, but from another point of view, what the Lord's Day is telling us here by appealing to that, that verse from Isaiah and the book of Corinthians, that eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive. What, what the Lord's Day is doing by quoting that passage is saying something like this, you have no idea. You have no idea. You have no concept. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, it hath not entered into the heart of man to conceive this, and it's better that way. If you saw the life everlasting today, if you tried to process that with your fallen and sinful human brain, you would misunderstand it. 
You still have a natural body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.44, and that natural body needs to be raised up, a spiritual body. You need to have eyes that are capable of taking in and appreciating the sights of the beauty that will be there in the new heavens and the new earth. You need to have ears, new ears, that are capable of taking in the sounds that we will be hearing in the new heavens and the new earth. You need to have a new mind that can process those things that we're going to experience there. You need to be raised up in the resurrection of the body. Then you will be in a position to understand. And that shouldn't disappoint us. It shouldn't disappoint us that we can't understand it right now. That should only add to the anticipation. Beloved, it's like when you show your children pictures of where you're going to take them on vacation this summer. A big part of the fun of that is watching your children get all excited and full of anticipation because the place and the picture looks so, so beautiful and wonderful and they've never been there before and they can already imagine what it's going to be like when you get there later on that summer. But they won't really appreciate it until they get there until they see the real thing. That's Paul's point in Romans 8.24 when he says, we're saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what doth he yet hope for? But, we, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? The fact that we can't understand it yet, not fully, only adds to the anticipation, only quickens hope in us. And that's a good thing. And that brings us to the final point of the sermon this morning, which is the true hope that our Christian faith gives us and leads us to. And part of what makes our hope a true hope is that it's not just a nice idea. It's not just pictures and words that we can wistfully think about. But the hope that the Lord's Day speaks of, and the hope that the Word of God speaks of is a spiritual reality that God puts in our hearts. Hope is a spiritual gift of the Spirit. That's why the Catechism puts this confession in the mouth of everyone who believes in answer to the question, what comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? The answer is this that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. That's part of the answer anyway. I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. I don't only think about it. I don't only wish for it. I'm not just thinking, well, maybe that will happen someday. And if that happens, then that would be a great thing. But I feel it. I feel it already in my heart as if it's a very part of me. I have, I possess this hope. It's in me. But what does that mean? Maybe that little phrase makes you feel a bit worried because you say to yourself, well, I don't always feel that way. I don't always feel what feels like eternal joy in my heart. Sometimes I feel sad. Sometimes I feel desperately sad. Sometimes... I'm depressed. Well, the Lord's Day doesn't intend to say that we have no sadness or sorrow or grief or even frightening doubts as Christians. The whole idea of hope is that we look to God even while we are down here in the valley, down here in this fallen world, down here experiencing the trials and the darkness of this life. But ask yourself this. When a preacher lays out the biblical truth about heaven and you sit there listening to that and you read about it in Scripture and in the confessions of the Christian church, is that where you want to be? Do you want to be with Jesus Christ? You find yourself thinking, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want more than anything else. To be at rest. 
That's what I want more than anything else, to feel what it's like not to have sin anymore. Not just that I stop doing this or that sinful behavior while placing good constraints in my life and so on so that I can, I can get along without giving in to my baser instincts, but that it's not there at all. It's not even a temptation. It's just gone. I, I want that. I desire that. Was your heart stirred this morning by the thought of everlasting life, by the vision that the Scripture lays out before us of that new heavens and that new earth? Well, that's all the Lord's Day is talking about. That's the beginning of eternal joy that God makes us feel in our heart as we encounter the reality of heaven. Sometimes it's nothing more than a little snapshot. Sometimes it's just a little glimpse But it's a glimpse that makes us long and desire to be closer to God, to know Him better, to know Him deeper, to know Him without the constraints of a depraved heart, to know Him without the fear of death and the fear of judgment. Jesus tells us in John 17, verse 3, that this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. If you know Him, beloved, and if you want to know Him more, You have the beginning of eternal joy that the Lord's Day is talking about here. That's a spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, if you sit here thinking to yourself, well, that's just a bunch of nonsense. That's just a bunch of wishful thinking. That's just pie in the sky. I'd rather get the most that I can get out of this life than wait for a future one that I don't really believe in. If that's your response when you hear heaven proclaimed and the life everlasting proclaimed, then I don't know what I can tell you other than what the Bible tells you, which is you're called to repent and believe and hope on the Lord. And you need to have your mind renewed and you need to have your heart changed so that your treasure is in heaven and not here below. And until such time as you are brought to such repentance, there is no hope for you. There is no hope for you in this life. There is no hope for you in this present evil age and in the pleasures of sin for that you can enjoy for a season. There's only death here. The calling of the Word of God is to repent of our clinging to this life and to look up unto God for hope. But you, beloved, you, beloved, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, beloved, whose hearts are warmed up by the thought of heaven, who anticipate your entrance into glory. You have hope. You have it. And that's not just because you have feelings of eternal joy. It's because you have faith in God. That ultimately is what makes our hope true hope. Feelings, they do, go up and down. Feelings aren't reliable, but God says in His Word, I am coming. I'm going to rend the heavens. I'm going to come down. I am coming. Believe that. Believe in me. God says to you in His Word, since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen what I am preparing for those who wait for me. There is a perfect salvation coming for you. And God is a God who keeps His promise. If you doubt that, Look at Jesus hanging on His cross. Remember what God said about the Messiah. He said, I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send a lamb who will be a sacrifice, who will deal forever and finally with your sins. Though even your best works be as filthy rags and all of your righteousnesses are nothing before Me, I will send a Redeemer who will give you a good standing with Me who will give you access to my holy house, access to life. And he kept that promise. 
He kept that promise at pains to himself, at cost to himself. He kept that promise even though it meant suffering and death and hell for his son. Now when he says, I am sending that same Jesus back again to renew all things, to raise you from the grave. Now when he says, I have plans for you, plans for your eternal joy, plans for your eternal happiness, plans to fulfill that aching longing that you have in your heart. Believe that he will fulfill that promise too. He will. We have a God who keeps his promise. You will, beloved, inherit perfect salvation. Just wait. Wait on God. Wait to inherit that salvation that he has prepared for you. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for this hope that we have. A hope to be at rest one day. A hope that this, my body, and each of us says that of ourselves, this, my body, will be risen from the dust of the grave and given rest. Not forgetfulness, not a losing of ourself, or even of past experience, but rest as we see how Thy grace and Thy mercy and Thy redemption has been the perfect answer to anything that we have experienced in this life, any pain, any sorrow, even sin itself. Strengthen our hope, O Father, that we may persevere, not give in to despair, but keep our heads lifted up. Forgive our sins. Forgive us, O Father, when we have drawn back in fear or when we have thought that maybe that's not for me. Maybe that hope is for others, but not for me. How could it be for me? Forgive us of our doubts. Set Jesus before our eyes. Quicken hope within us that we may persevere. And send us away now with thy blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.